This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're two years into this podcast, and today we're going to listen to some of the highlights. But first, I thought I'd give you a little bit of background on how and why we started the James Cancer-Free World Podcast, and a little bit of information about me, just in case you were wondering. I was a newspaper reporter for many years, first in in the Philadelphia area and then here in Columbus at the Columbus Dispatch. In 2009, I rode in the first Pelotonia and I was hooked for a lot of reasons. And over the next several years, as I continued to ride and raise money for cancer research here at the James, along with thousands of other riders, I got to know more and more Pelotonia people and then more and more James people. Soon after I left the dispatch in 2015, I began freelancing for the James, writing stories for the website. I met, interviewed, got to know, and wrote about so many passionate and dedicated James doctors, scientists, administrators, and began thinking this could really be an interesting podcast. So I met with Melissa Hall and Jennifer Hargett, my bosses in the communications department at the James, and I said, I'd like to do a podcast. And fortunately, they said yes, and we created the James Cancer-Free World podcast, which you're listening to right now. So thank you, Melissa and Jennifer, for this for this great opportunity, and, and thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal from the start was to highlight and share all the amazing research and all the new treatments being developed here at the James and elsewhere that are extending and saving lives, and also, really importantly, to explain cancer science in simple, easy-to-understand language. And after a few episodes, we also began adding in some patients and their experiences into the mix because this is a really important uh, way to understand the impact of cancer. So, okay, let's get going and revisit some of the highlights from the first two years of the James Cancer-Free World podcast. And let's start with a fascinating history lesson from Bill Farr, the CEO of the James. Bill has been at the James for 40 plus years, and his mentor was the actual Dr. James. And Bill filled us in on Dr. James's incredible vision and determination and how this led to the creation of a dedicated cancer hospital here in Columbus in 1990, making it one of the first in all of the Midwest. Well, Steve, uh, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. James in 1975 when I came in to do my training uh, and got to know him very well during my first year, had the opportunity to uh, operate with him the number of, uh, of cases. Uh, during my third year of training, uh, uh, Dr. Carey, who was the chairman at the time, uh, had Dr. James become head of a surgical oncology division uh, within the Department of Surgery. So this was a new division, a surgical new, oncology. Correct. A new division uh, in 1977. And they wanted to start a fellowship program. Uh, and so it was sort of the last-minute thing, but they asked me to be the first surgical oncology fellow during my residency. Uh, and uh, that was a wonderful experience. I basically got to spend the entire year uh, working and operating with Dr. James. So I got to know him very well. And back then, you didn't specialize in one type of surgical oncology, right? You performed every type. Correct. I, uh, following my residency, I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering for two years in New York City 
to do a further surgical oncology training and then came back to Ohio State in 1982. Uh, and the training for a surgical oncologist at that time was basically any cancer, any place, except for brain cancer. So we learned how to operate on um, Sar- from sarcomas to colon cancer to pancreatic cancer to laryngeal cancer to breast cancer, uh, we basically were trained to do all types of breast cancer surgery. You said all types of breast cancer surgery. I'm sorry. You mean all types of cancer? Yeah, all everything. types of was cancer, cancer surgery. Was yeah. that harder? to be able to do all those different things, or was there enough similarity that with practice you could do it? Well, at at, at that point in time, because treatments for a lot of cancer uh, were were mainly surgical, uh, that uh, it, it, you know, it was something that took a lot of, of, of years of training, but uh, was really pretty straightforward for, with the different operations that we did. Um, and that continued. Uh, I, I did uh, all different types of operations for about 20 years until uh, the, really the James got going. And at that point in time, as most cancer centers were doing at that time, was specializing in that uh, each uh, not only surgeon but medical oncologist and even radiation oncologists would specialize in one or two types of cancer. Because cancer treatment was changing so quickly yeah. uh, that it was difficult to keep up and be a leader in the field for breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, sarcoma cancer, colon cancer, uh, just because things were changing so quickly. So to be at a cancer center where you had a lot of support, uh, all of us in the early 90s started picking out a specialty that we were ingrained to do uh, and uh, putting together multidisciplinary clinics, working with our uh, partners in medical oncology and radiation oncology to really provide the, the, the optimal care for each cancer. That was the vision of Dr. James, wasn't it? Even back 20, 30 years before that to create here in the middle of Ohio a dedicated cancer hospital when I think probably no one thought that that was possible. It was a pipe dream to, to that, think. That is exactly correct. Um, uh, Dr. James uh, uh, went to Memorial Sloan Kettering to do a fellowship in cancer surgery and returned to Ohio in 1947. Uh, after three or four years, he, he recognized how much, how, 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 treatment for all cancers was was so superior at a cancer hospital where everyone was subspecializing in one area uh, and you know the cancer hospitals at that time were Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Roswell Park uh, up in Buffalo uh, MD Anderson there was really no cancer hospital in the Midwest and he had a vision in the early 50s his goal was to bring that type of cancer care to Columbus and Ohio and the Midwest. And uh, so he set out uh, his goal. Uh, uh, he'll, he, he told me uh, when I worked with him in the mid-'70s that his goal was to have a cancer hospital built 
in Columbus, Ohio, that could provide the kind of treatment that he saw patients getting the memorial. And actually, in 1960, there were headlines in the Columbus Dispatch that a a cancer hospital was going to be built in Columbus, Ohio. Only took 30 years to get it done. And he did live long enough to see that, right? Well, he practiced up until 1989. uh, And actually, the last 10 years of his practice, uh, I was his partner. And I operated with him a lot during that time. Um, But the cancer hospital opened in 90. So he was able to see the cancer hospital functioning for about eight years. For him, what was that like to have his vision finally come true. Uh, I, I, it was just unbelievable. Um, uh, he, uh, he was able to wheel the first patient uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, was, was housed in the cancer hospital in 1990. He wheeled uh, that patient in, yeah, on in a, a wheelchair. Yeah. Oh, in a yeah. wheelchair. And so, uh, I mean, he was, just, um, he was just ecstatic. In episode four, Bill Farr also talked about Dr. James's commitment to his patients, a legacy that continues at the cancer hospital named for him. In episode five of the podcast, we talked with Rafe Pollock, who at the time was the new director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. Rafe filled us in on what brought him here to Ohio State and the Comprehensive Cancer Center and the importance of collaboration. I was very fortunate. Uh, uh, one of my very best friends in oncology, uh, Mike Caligiuri, uh, who was the uh, director of the cancer program here at Ohio State, uh, was very involved in my recruitment to come here in 2013. Uh, technically, the titles were as uh, director of the Division of Surgical Oncology and chief of the surgical services at the James. This was about two years before the new James Hospital opened, and so part of the allure of coming here was being able to participate in the planning of this brand new uh, large-scale surgical environment. Oh, so you got to help create and 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 design the surgical bays. Yes, uh, which is really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. Uh, being from the Midwest, I was also eager to to get back to my roots, uh, and that was that was part of the driver as well. Uh, I was tremendously impressed during my recruitment process at the at the remarkable uh, collegiality uh, that I witnessed uh, at Ohio State, and and I really decided this would be something I want to be part of if possible. You mentioned that collaboration aspect, and several other people I've talked to have said that same thing. How different is that culture here than perhaps at, uh, at other places? And why is it important? Well, this is the fifth medical center that I've worked in. And, and of the five, it clearly has the very best uh, uh, cooperative, collaborative, collegial environment. And, and that's critical in order to make progress, not only because solid tumor treatment is multidisciplinary, but increasingly team science is also multidisciplinary. And if you don't have this commitment to working together, the entity that will win ultimately is the tumor. Uh, Our best shot is by working together. And it's extremely gratifying to being part of a a group that's much larger than any of us as individuals where we can see this tangible progress being made. Rafe will be back soon to do a new podcast, and we'll talk about what's ahead at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center in 2020 and beyond. So stay tuned. I think you'll be excited and inspired by what Rafe will tell us. 
Let's switch gears a bit and talk about bicycles and Pelotonia. In episode 26, we talk with Doug Ullman, the president and CEO of Pelotonia and a three-time cancer survivor. Doug took over the leadership position at Pelotonia in September 2014 and rode in his first Pelotonia the following year. I asked him what it was like to actually and finally ride in Pelotonia. It's hard to describe to somebody who hasn't experienced it what it actually feels like. And so I felt like I had read everything. I was at the first opening ceremony. I felt like I had talked to so many riders and Peloton leaders and captains who had all talked about whether it was their favorite part of the ride or their most emotional or impactful experience during the ride weekend. But until I got on the bike and until I was surrounded by thousands of people and and truly until I rode into Granville, I don't think I got it. And it wasn't until I literally had tears coming down my face riding into Granville. And just so people know, there's, the whole town of Granville shows up. Hundreds of people are lying in the streets with signs and cowbells and cheering us on. And it's yeah. And and for me, I mean, look, it was it, it was an exhausting experience leading up to the ride, right? So we're working yeah. hard for <laughs> the summer, and then you wake up on Saturday morning after a huge opening ceremony, and you say wow, now I got to go ride a hundred miles. <laughs> and so by the time I got to Granville at mile 62 or whatever it might be, you know, I was feeling it. I was exhausted. And to see families and kids and people saying thank you and, and holding signs and ringing cowbells and bands playing. And it was overwhelming, both as someone who works with Pelotonia, but also as a cancer survivor, just to see a community come out on a Saturday to stand for hours and hours and hours cheering people on, it was um, it was very moving emotionally, but also very inspiring. So why do you think that is, that Pelotonia has captured the imagination of, of Central Ohio and beyond, that thousands of people show up, that, you're, it's, that you have 8,500 riders, 3,000 volunteers? What is it about Pelotonia that, that brings that out in people? Well, I think this is a special place, and we can talk more about those characteristics. I think, unfortunately, we're dealing with a disease that touches everybody. And yeah, so I'm, people are whether it's personally or in their family or their community, everybody knows somebody who's been diagnosed. And most likely, everybody knows somebody who's been treated at the James. And so hearing story after story after story of people who've received incredible care and state-of-the-art therapy at the James really drives them to want to help and make sure that others have access to, to similar opportunities in the future. So I think, unfortunately, we're dealing with a pervasive disease that touches everybody's life. I think one of the things that has made Pelotonia remarkably successful is the community engagement, not just participation, but the way that the brand has become so culturally relevant and the way that it's opened doors for people to take a seemingly negative experience, whether it's their own cancer journey or someone they love or know and turn it into something positive. And I think all of us are seeking in our lives to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And Pelotonia, I think, came along at a perfect time and captured the... In the it, midst of a terrible recession. Totally. Totally. Where <laughs> right? people yeah. are, were are, losing yeah. hope and, and um, frustrated and, and you name it, and yet said, wait a minute, we can do something as a community about something that impacts all of us. 
And it sounds outlandish and it sounds audacious, but look what's happened. Um, and I think, again, I think it's human nature for all of us to want to seek some bigger impact. And when we come together, we can do that. This year, Pelotonia raised $23.2 million, pushing the 11-year total to $207 million, which is pretty amazing. Earlier this year, we podcasted with Dr. Zihai Lee, the founding director of the brand new Pelotonia Institute of Immuno-Oncology. Pelotonia is providing $102 million over the next five years to help fund this game-changing and world-leading immuno-oncology institute. Immunotherapy is a way to activate the body's own immune system to better recognize, target, and destroy the cancer cells that have fooled the body's immune system into thinking they are normal cells. I asked Zihai where we were in the life cycle of immuno-oncology. Well, the first thing that we need to uh, accomplish is to establish the principle for immunotherapy. That has been done thanks to many, many people's work. Second thing is to make immunotherapy effective for treatment of patients with cancer. Thirdly, to make this effective for treatment of everybody with cancer. And finally, to utilize the strategy to actually prevent cancer from developing in the first place. This is tall order. Three things we will do. The first thing is that we will recruit more than 30 investigators to join the force, to fight against cancer through immunological research. Second, we're building top-notch immune monitoring platform to understand more about the immune system against cancer in patients. Finally, we'll grow science in some of the key important areas such as cell therapy and immunogenomics and so on. Now, now, you made a great point that one of the first things you're going to do is just learn about what's already being done here. And, I mean, more than half the people, maybe two-thirds of the people I've talked to on this podcast are already doing immunotherapy, that it's prevalent and common at the James. So you're learning, and then that gives you helps you coordinate the plan as you move forward, I take it. Absolutely. Uh, James is at the forefront of immunotherapy. We have done tremendous amount of work uh, in many areas. We are leading some of the national trials uh, in lung cancer, in lymphoma, and in other cancer types as well. Uh, this uh, force really add a critical mass to this new Institute for Immuno-Oncology. We will definitely check back in with Zihai and get an update on the new Pelotonia-funded institute. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to hear some more highlights from the first two years of the James Cancer-Free World podcast. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. 
To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. Welcome back to this special episode of the James Cancer Free World podcast. Don Benson is one of the world's leading experts on multiple myeloma, a type of blood cancer. I've gotten to know Don the past few years and invited him on the podcast to talk about all the advances that have been made in the treatment of multiple myeloma. And I also invited Matt Hare, one of Don's patients. As part of his treatment, Matt underwent a bone marrow transplant. Here's Matt and Don describing what that procedure is like. It was hard. I think to Don's point, it's uh, you have to have to be in for it. it and, and the hard part is that afterwards you're really sick for, for I don't know how long you tell me. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was probably a, a week and a half of where you're really sick. Um, you're, you know, your, your counts bottom out. You've got no immune system, no energy. Um, you are confined to a room and, uh, it sort of feels mentally like the walls are closing in, but then physically, like you don't want to do anything anyways. And just having to persevere. Um, and I remember, uh, the piece of advice that Don had given me was you can't look from day to day, but you have to break it into bigger chunks. And when I started looking at it in that way and saying, okay, a couple days from now, I'm going to start to feel better. And you keep layering that on um, and you get through it. But uh, it definitely wasn't something that was on my bucket list to go through. Right. No one should have to go through that. Don, what do you look for in that that week, that 10 days as, as his immune system is is trying to rebound? What are the like the signs, the, the things you look for to make sure things are working right? Yeah, I don't know. It's um, th- things have changed today from 10 years ago from when Matt had his. It's still nothing. You know, it's not a walk in the park. It's not um, um, rainbows and butterflies. It's it's a tough procedure to get through. I think in the in the midst of the whole thing, when you're a week in and um, kind of you know you look at the clock and swear that the hands just went backwards, yeah. and um, there, there's a lot of it that's um, upstairs in your brain and your heart and your spirit that's just perseverance and um, you know from a medical side, from a science standpoint, you, you check the boxes, you do everything right, you double check, triple check, um, but a lot of it is just being there and reminding them why they're doing it, what we're doing this for. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel, even if you can't see it yet, it's coming. I knew um, coming out of the transplant, if I was able to achieve remission, that I absolutely was going to ask her to marry me. Wow. Okay. Did you, did you talk to Don about that first to get some advice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You'll have to listen to episode 41 to find out what happened when Matt asked Kate to marry him, but I'll bet you could probably already guess what she said. Don and Matt remain a big part of each other's lives and still ride together in Pelotonia every year. In episode 42, I talked with Daryl Gray about the importance of colonoscopies. And we also talked about the results of my very own and recent colonoscopy. You know, it's it's not uncommon that I'm in uh, pu- the public and or in the community and people say, you know, doc, I haven't seen a doctor in 15 years or I've never seen a doctor. You know, I'm healthy. I try to eat well. I try to exercise. I don't think I need screening. Uh, the truth of the matter is when you're age eligible, when you turn age 45 or 50, particularly if you're average risk, now if you're, you have a family history sooner than that, but you need to be screened. And uh, that's because, you know, people commonly associate cancer with symptoms. 
and it can be associated with symptoms. But certainly, many early stage colorectal cancers present with no symptoms whatsoever, meaning you can feel fine, no pain, no bleeding, no weight loss, and have an early stage colon cancer. And that's why screening is so important, not only to prevent cancer by removing precancerous polyps, but to de- detect it early if it's there so it's curable. Well, that's a great point because certain types of cancer, like colorectal, you're not going to have those symptoms that you mentioned until it's a, a later stage where it may really be dangerous and it may have a metastasized and it's so much harder to treat. That's so, right. And that, I guess, sort of brings us to that something I brought up at the beginning, which was my own colonoscopy, <laughs> I think it was three months ago. And uh, I'm, I think I'm an example of someone. I do see a doctor regularly, but I'm in very good health. I mm-hmm. exercise. My weight's uh, okay. Yeah, but <laughs> you're, eat, you're about eat. to bike 800 miles in France or so. so. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I, <laughs> I, I, I'm in pretty good shape, but, but I did have my colonoscopy in they found something. So here, I, I have mm-hmm. the report. So you tell me what it means. So just so the listeners know, he literally just handed me his uh, <laughs> pathology results. Um, so yes, yeah, so it demonstrates that you have uh, you had one tubular adenoma removed, and you had something else removed that looked like a polyp, but it's normal colon mucosa. So you had one precancerous polyp, a tubular adenoma. And it's recommended, and the person that wrote the letter to you uh, appropriately recommended you come back in five years, because that's based on the size, number, and type of polyps you had. Again, you had one um, small, so so low-risk tubular adenoma, and so you would come back in five years for your next colonoscopy. Well, that low-risk adenoma... Eventually, that would could I mean it, not definitely, but could have become can- colon cancer. Certainly, and um, it could have. And typically, we, you know, certainly certain polyps behave differently, and everybody is different. But the, one of the mantras has been, you know, about ten years from normal mucosa or normal colon to cancer, or very tiny kind of precancerous cells to development of cancer. And so, certainly, if that had been in there for years, it possibly could have turned into cancer. That's a little bit of a sobering thought to know Mm -hmm. that there was something in my body that had a very good chance of becoming uh, colon cancer. So that's, I'm glad I had that colonoscopy. No, no, absolutely. And you you are, like you said, you pointed out that you are, you know, try to eat well. You're obviously very active. You biked in Peloton. You're about to have a a long biking trip come up. Um, And so, you know, uh, colorectal cancer, as with many cancers, is no respecter of person. And so that's what makes screening so important. Episode 39 is one of my favorites. It's called A Day in the Life of the James, and that's exactly what it was as I talked to four James doctors about what they did on one specific day, June 19th, 2019. And I also talked with two of the patients they saw that day. One of these patients was Beverly Williford, who was diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma and treated at the James by Dr. Jennifer Wojak. On June 19th, I saw Dr. Wojak. And um, because I was having some concerns, um, because I was still having some side effects, what I thought were possibly side effects from the rituximab, uh, even though I hadn't had anything since March, but I, I was also concerned that maybe something else was going on and just needed some verification that the bone marrow and the lymph nodes were still good. And so um, on the 19th, when I had had that bone marrow biopsy done, and on 
the 19th when I saw her, she said the bone marrow biopsy was completely good. There was no, no lymphoma, nothing abnormal on the uh, bone marrow biopsy. So, the, so those lingering side effects you were feeling were just that from the lingering side effects from the chemo. Right. She, uh, she said that she thought that's what it was. It's just the lingering side effects from the chemotherapy. So that, how did that, that's great news. How did you react to that? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm celebrating. <laughs> I'm going to have a party. I'm going to, you'll get an invitation. You know, it's just great news. Great news. Um, just thrilled being thrilled. I just, you, you know, I just really feel like, um, you know, took a deep breath and said, but I had to say, say, thank you, God, because he's been a part of this journey, this entire journey that I've been on. And uh, it's been an ongoing journey that lots of ups and downs and went through a lot of things. My entire time going to the James, I have not found one person who has not been kind and caring and supportive and who wants to help you no matter where they're at, whether uh, registration, you know, uh, ICC, Dr. J, uh, Dr. Wojak's office, um, the infusion area, uh, ER, no matter where I went, people were loving and caring and really made you feel like you were important. Also, in the Day in the Life episode, I talked with Dave Gosky, the Executive Director of Administration of the James, and Dave gave us the big picture view of what went on at the James on June 19th, a typical day in the life of the James. So on that day, we had 1,470 outpatients visit the cancer center that day. Of them, 1,270 had been here before, and we had 200 new patients um, visit that day for the first time. Um, in the clinics, too, we had 724 patients meet with a physician, and 190 meet with a nurse practitioner or another member of the care team. 142 patients received chemotherapy, and 294 patients had a radiation medicine treatment. Uh, in our call center, we had 1,523 phone calls made that day, and 718 patient appointments were also completed. On the inpatient side, we had 326 patients, and 36 patients were discharged. Um, we had 67 surgeries performed that day, and there were 8,274 different medications administered to our patients that day. And finally, three patients were enrolled on a clinical trial. So this is a fairly normal day for patient volume in the James, other than our clinical trial area, where we normally have five or six patients enrolled per day. These numbers are a reminder of the impact of cancer and the amazing work being done here at the James every single day. Thanks for listening and being part of the James's mission to create a cancer-free world. In the weeks and months to come, we have an amazing roster of guests scheduled, so stay tuned. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.